doing today is probably a bit different from what you normally have within the academic context of Oxford, which is that although I'm trained as an anthropologist and I did a PhD in Tajikistan, um, based in Cambridge, I'm afraid, not Oxford, um, a couple of decades ago, I've spent the last um, 15 years working as a journalist. And for many years, to be honest, I rather put my anthropology training to a side. Um, certainly when I broke into financial journalism um, back in the mid-1990s, there was a sense amongst much of the city, much of the money world, that anthropology was a bit irrelevant, it was a bit hippie. Um, I didn't really advertise the background I had. But in the last few years, um, I've actually become very proud of being an anthropologist and realized that it plays a very key role as to how I do my financial journalism today. And so I'm very grateful to Shirley for allowing me to come back and talk a bit about this. Because what I'm going to do is talk a bit about the issue of gurus and diviners in relation to a particular group of bankers, a particular story about a group of bankers that I've been following in recent years, and which form the core of the book that Shirley very kindly mentioned, um, which is in the popular press. It's not an academic book. It's a popular um, book um, called Fool's Gold. This is the book which some of you may have seen. Because really, the work I've done in that is one place where I've tried to bring together my academic background and my current trade as a journalist today. Now, my story about how I got involved in Fool's Gold and how I started to try and use anthropological principles to decode bankers really starts back in the spring of 2005, when I had just joined something on the Financial Times called the Capital Markets Team. Um, it used to be a very geeky backwater of the FT. Um, the FT, you know, as any social organisation, we have our own departments, our status symbols, we're a little mini village of our own, like many newspapers. And the Capital Markets Team, when I moved across there in 2005, was a pretty low status part of the paper. But I joined it for various long, complicated <coughs> reasons, and one of the first things I decided to do, having joined that team, or joined it to run it, was to go down to Nice in the spring of 2005 and attend something which was called the European Securitization Forum Annual Conference. It was a meeting of investment bankers who were involved in the business of securitization, the slicing and dicing of debt. So I flew down there in the spring of 2005. Um, one of the things I quickly realized is that the great thing about banking conferences that they always happen in very nice places like Nice or Barcelona or Flash Holiday Resorts. You never have to go to anywhere like Hull to go and see the bankers at play. But I flew down to Nice, a very swanky conference room, and as I walked into that conference room, I was struck by a very uncanny sense that I was almost like a, an anthropologist back in Tajikistan doing my field work and going into a big wedding ritual. Because when I was in Tajikistan, the way I did my research there for my PhD was to basically use the study of wedding rituals to try and analyse how Tajik society had maintained its sense of Islamic identity and ethnic identity even within the Soviet state. So I was working under Professor Gellner and I was looking a lot at how um, the Islamic identity, Islamic ideas had intermingled with the Soviet ideology and system and looking above all else at marriage rituals as a way of trying to explore the hook to try and analyse how these concepts and structures had intermingled. 
So I spent a lot of time in Tajikistan going to big Islamic ceremonies because they were, in many ways, the key social focus for the village, for the valley where I lived, the key place where Tajik society reproduced its core ideas and core social structures for the next generation. Well, going into the European Securitization Forum Conference in Nice in the spring of 2005 was uncannily similar, because in many ways, investment banking conferences are to the modern banking world what marriage rituals were to Tajikistan. Namely, it's a chance to gather together the scattered tribe, to restate their core ideologies, if you like, both through formal rituals, and in place of elaborate wedding ceremonies, think PowerPoints up on the podium, but also through a lot of informal rituals around the side, i.e. all that boozing among the bankers and all that chit-chat. And it basically reaffirms their core identity as a group, but also, most importantly, reaffirms their sense, or reaffirms their worldview, their core cognitive map, as it were. And when I walked into the conference centre in Nice in 2005, three key things immediately hit me between the eyes about the way that this particular group of bankers was operating. Firstly, they were a very distinct group, a very distinct tribe, if you like. I often use the word tribe in my sort of writings as a journalist, and I know that's a real abuse of the concept because it's a rather sloppy term, uh, but it you know, communicates quite well with a lot of my readers. Well, I'm trying to indicate that this was, if you like, a group apart, a group that had a sense of its own identity. It was lots and lots of young, super bright bankers who actually worked all over the world, but were joined together by very strong links of either having worked together, studied together, or a sense of shared identity. And I'll come back to that in a minute. So the tribe who were very much you know, operating as a unit they spoke a language, they were using a jargon that frankly was completely impenetrable to anybody outside that group. Um, I later discovered it was actually impenetrable not just to non-bankers, but other people even within the financial universe who didn't happen to be from this little particular group. Um, they were talking about CDO squares, Gaussian copula, all this formulae. And I sat there during the first day of the conference feeling, frankly, like I used to feel in the Tajik wedding rituals, which was, I could hear people talking, but I understood not a single word that they were saying. I mean, it sort of appalled me, but it also fascinated and inspired me, because I thought, gee whiz, if I can learn Tajik, I can darn well learn banker speak. <laughs> the other things that occurred to me, though, well, as I looked around this group, was that they really weren't used to having outsiders looking in. In fact, they had in this conference a few... Um, what they call the trade press, i.e. specialist journalists who worked for dedicated magazines. They never actually had someone from the mainstream press, if you consider the FT to be mainstream. Um, and, you know, not quite the Daily Mail, but, you know. But they never actually had someone from the mainstream press attend, and they were quite surprised that I was there. But there were two other key important things that sort of marked them out of my eyes. When they talked about money, and they actually spent the first couple of days talking almost non-stop about money, about their craft, about securitization. And I'll come into what that means in a minute. They did so without any sense of actually having human beings involved. Now, for those of you who've ever studied Latin, you'll know that the roots of the word credit come from the Latin credere, meaning to believe, which is fundamentally a human social construct. And it's completely self-evident to anyone who's come through an anthropological training that money is fundamentally 
a human construct. It's fundamentally about values. It's not a universal like gravity, although bankers would often like to think that way. However, when the bankers in Nice were talking, they talked about money as if it was a branch of astrophysics. It was a universal, hardcore concept. Values were taken as self-evident, um, acultural in a sense. And money and credit was defined as something which is all about mathematics and equations and formulae and Greek letters and really had very little to do with real-life human beings. They were talking about slicing and dicing debt without any sense of what people at one end of that debt chain might actually be involved with. At the same time, they were also driven by a very distinct sense of mission. You had a group of young bankers and a couple of hundred who believed that they were not really engaged in an activity which set them apart and which in some ways had a vision of money that was very different from what normal people would see as money. Most importantly of all, they believed that they were actually remaking the world in quite an important sense. Now, I don't know if anyone here has any background in finance or banking at all. I'm kind of guessing not. Okay, well, excuse me for going through again what CDO squared is all that, but however, um, the key thing to understand for those of you non-bankers is that up until about the 1980s, when banks made loans, essentially they lent out money to a company or to a consumer, and they kept that loan on their book, and it stayed there. Now, in some ways that was great, because it meant that a bank had a personal relationship with whoever was borrowing money. So you actually had come some kind of social context to that loan, and you had the bank who was able to check whether that person was going to pay back their money. The problem with that, though, or so bankers thought, was that if a bank made a lot of loans to people or comp companies that were all engaged in the same kind of activity, it left them exposed to what bankers call very concentrated risk. If you imagine for a minute, okay, that I'm a bank and I make loans to all of you in the room, and then suddenly an asteroid comes and wipes out this room. If I'm a bank and I've kept all the loads on my own books, then I'm actually exposed to a very, very big risk, and I'll go down at the same time as all of you guys because it's very concentrated. So in about the 1980s, what banks started to do was say, listen, we need to try and hedge our exposure. We need to try and make sure that we're more diversified back to the old principle of don't put all your eggs in one basket. So they started to do things like trade loans between themselves, and then along came derivative technology, and they began to try and trade the credit risk between themselves in an effort to make sure that they had a diversified portfolio in much the same way that a household might say, well, you know what, if I'm going to invest in the stock market, I don't want to just buy one share, I want to buy hundreds of shares and slice and dice and make sure I'm, I've got diversified exposure. So banks have started doing that. And essentially, what the people at the Securitization Forum were doing was taking credit risk, taking all the loans that existed in the banking system, chopping them up, and then selling them either to each other or selling them to new investors in order to try and spread the risk across the system. It's a bit like making sausages in the sense that you're taking meat or loans, slicing and dicing, putting them into shiny new casings, um, which in the case of finance were called CDOs, collateralized debt obligations, and then selling them to other people. And the theory was that people who were doing this were essentially not just making themselves richer, because guess what? 
Every time bankers chopped them up, they got some money. But they were also making the financial system a lot safer. They were remaking the financial system, remaking the way that finance worked in quite a radical, fundamental way. In fact, the parallel they often used was it was a bit like the way that people who'd invented the internet had remade the world of communications. They used the word technology revolution quite a lot in, in relation to finance. So I went away from this conference in Nice absolutely fascinated by the fact that you had this very clear-cut group of people who believed that they were remaking the financial world and using a set of concepts about finance which were very different from what most people thought about money and yet were a very distinct group's tribe that most other people who were outside that group had no idea even existed. And it took me a long time to realize just how dangerous some of what they were doing turned out to be. But before I became aware of the potential risks of this, I wanted to find a way to explain and tell the story of how this particular group of gurus, diviners, experts had developed and try and put it into context. So I started asking questions and started looking even before the crisis for a vehicle to try and explain how, how and why these people thought they were special. Now, I don't know whether any of you have read Karen Ho's book about um, finance called Liquidated, but the whole question of how anyone as an anthropologist approaches the financial world today throws up a lot of very interesting questions about methodology and about the way that anthropologists actually try and do their research. Because to a large extent, when anthropologists in previous decades have gone out and do their research, they've tended to do so studying people who are often less powerful than them, either within their own culture or in other cultures. And there's been a kind of presumption that actually, you know, if you pitch up and plant your tent in their society, then they kind of can't object and, you know, you can basically do that and look at it and you'll have every chance of breaking in if you like. And certainly when I was doing my field work in Tajikistan, I mean, it was jolly difficult for me to get into Tajikistan back then, but I managed to, and I arrived in the village, and I basically spent, you know, a year and a half living in my village, looking at what was happening, and immersing myself in participant observation, if you like. Trying to do the same kind of thing within the banking world, the financial world, is fantastically hard. Um, that's partly because bankers, by nature, tend to be, you know, fundamentally paranoid, and they have all these commercial secrets they're trying to hide, it's also, though, to do with a power issue, as Karen Ho explains very, very neatly. Because guess what? Bankers are paid a lot more than anthropologists. They're the ones who basically control, control the world, to at least, to control the world to a large extent. They're able to let an anthropologist just wander in. And for the most part, you know, if you want to try and research how a group of bankers might operate, how they've developed these kind of networks, or why they're operating as a little mini-tribe, it's pretty tough. Now, what Karen Ho did in her research recently, and it's a fascinating book, um, I'd strongly recommend it to anyone who's not seen it, it's called Liquidated. Um, she spent a bit of time um, working, if you like, undercover in a bank, and then went out and tried to use what she called kinship networks amongst bankers on Wall Street, who were linked together by virtue of educational networks through Ivy League universities. And she traced through what had happened to them and then trying to paint a picture of a village to understand the social interactions on Wall Street. It was quite an effective um, way of operating. I mean, other people have done um, 
pursues you know, different tactics. So, I don't know whether any of you know someone called Horacio Ortiz, very interesting um, Colombian-French anthropologist who was working with Keith Hart recently in Paris, who actually managed to get himself, smuggled himself into a couple of banks um, a few years ago and looked at quite similar stuff to what I was looking at, but actually managed to get a job at a bank. But again, was eventually forced to work through these kind of quasi-kinship networks and reconstruct what was going on rather than directly observe it. What I did with my um, work, if you like, trying to understand what was happening in securitization, and it wasn't classic anthropologist work at all, it was primarily journalistic, but I decided to focus on a particular group of bankers who turned out to be very central to the way that this group of securitization experts had developed. And the bank I decided to focus on was J.P. Morgan. Um, I stumbled across them almost by accident in that original conference in Nice because when I was sitting in the audience in Nice on the second day, not understanding what on earth was happening, um, I got so bored at one point that I started flicking through the um, conference materials and I started reading all the biographies at the back of all the people on stage. And as I looked through the biographies, I realised that they'd all used to work at J.P. Morgan. So I became you know, very curious about that and began to ask a lot of questions and then began to try and trace through. But the J.P. Morgan story, or the J.P. Morgan team, was fascinating as a small little mini-village, if you like, because they had played a very crucial role in the development of not just the ideas, but the subculture. They'd also played a very crucial role in terms of um, acting as a very clear-cut team. They were quite a nice bounded group that you could actually study. So over the next couple of years, I began to ask more and more questions. And then when the crisis broke, I actually went back to the team again and tried to get them as a group to piece together exactly how this strange subculture, how this strange world had developed and why it had become in some ways both so messianic but so semi-detached from what most people would consider to be normal concepts of money. Their story basically starts um, back in the 1980s when J.P. Morgan was undergoing quite a radical change at the same time that the wider banking world was undergoing quite a change. Um, in the middle of the last century, J.P. Morgan was a pretty traditional bank. It made loans in the old-fashioned way and it prided itself on being a very blue-chip, um, conservative type of bank that only lent to blue-chip conservative customers. But by the 1980s, it began to realize that actually um, it wasn't making very much money that way. And at the same time, a quasi-revolution was happening in the derivatives world, which was that bankers were beginning to play around with the idea of using financial instruments to trade risk. Originally, they did that with um, foreign exchange markets and commodity markets, and then by the 1980s, they were doing it with interest rate markets, trading the risk that government bonds would go up or down and trading the risk that governments would raise interest rates or not. Now, about that time, a small group of bankers linked to J.P. Morgan began to get very interested in this idea of trading interest rate derivatives. And there were a number of things about them that marked them out. J.P. Morgan in the old days had a policy of hiring graduates directly from university. Um, banks still do that to a certain degree, but J.P. Morgan did it in a very um, 
one might say, old-fashioned way, in that it tended to take people directly from university, age 20 or 21, suck them into the J.P. Morgan machine, and the presumption often was that you kept them for life, or you kept them for a large part of their career. In contrast to the usual idea that you sort of hopped between banks on Wall Street, the J.P. Morgan gang tended to be, or a large chunk of them, there for a long haul. So what that meant was you had a bunch of pretty young, pretty impressionable, people coming on board with quite a strong sense of bank identity. They weren't just specialists in one thing, they had quite a strong sense of bank identity. Very bright, being pulled into this machine. And by the mid-1980s, late 1980s, a number of them had been pulled into this so-called swaps desk, where the derivative technology was starting. And in the way that one might imagine any group of young, so, you know, early 20s people um, doing, they sat around, they played around, they tossed around ideas. They thought they were super bright. They were part of quite a meritocratic culture. Precisely because this was a new field of finance, there weren't strongly defined areas of patterns of behavior. Um, there was a sense that actually you would come in, and if you are bright, you could remake the world. And so you had women joining on pretty equal terms. You had quite a big ethnic mix. It wasn't just an old boys network that was dominating this field of finance as they tended to be in other areas of finance which were more traditional. And they began to toss ideas around. By the mid-1990s, this particular group, and we're talking really about a dozen, maybe two dozen people, had moved off from tossing ideas around in a very intense way um, in the interest rate derivative market into this idea of using derivative technology to slice and dice credit risk, slice and dice loans. And one of the seminal things that happened to this particular J.P. Morgan group um, was in 1997 they came up with their big invention, if you like, which was a product known as Bistro, which was a complicated system, a complicated technology for slicing and dicing loans and then selling it to other investors around the world. Now, as they played around with these ideas, there were sort of three concepts that drove them very strongly as a team. One was this tremendous faith in the concept of innovation. If you go back, as I did, and sort of look back at their statements that they made in the late 1990s, over and over again they kept talking about innovation. There's tremendous faith in innovation. In some ways, it was something which was endemic to the financial world back then. But it went much further than that, because certainly if you look back more widely, to the late 1990s, um, to America, it really was the era when people began to believe that innovation was self-evidently a good thing. I mean, you had the internet, you had all these areas where people began to think, it's sort of end of millennium, hype and belief, that actually, if you had bright ideas, if you were creative and dedicated problem solving, then you could inherently make the world dramatically better. It was taken as almost self-evident. The other key theme that very much dominated what they were talking about was this concept of free markets. And again, there was a very strong belief that drove them that in the process of slicing and dicing all this debt and creating these derivatives, that they were advancing the cause of free markets. And that was also taken as self-evidently a very, very good thing. And the buzzword they used to use a lot in relation to this was market completion. And the belief was that by creating all these techniques for trading credit risk and loans 
and basically spreading risk out across the system, you were creating the perfect free market. And again, that was seen as almost a kind of evolutionary end goal. You know, it was assumed that you know, markets could only get freer and freer and freer, and that was good, and innovation was helping that. Aligned with that was this concept of globalization. And again, this idea that at the end of the 1990s, as the internet took hold, as free markets took hold, as the Soviet Union collapsed, and we all became one big seamless glob, if you like, of free market following countries, then somehow the world was becoming flat in every sense. I mean, some of you may have met Tom Fried read Tom Friedman's book about this, but it really captured the idea, the zeitgeist of an age that sort of spread out in a very fundamental way, that if you could slice and dice debt using innovation, you had a market that could extend everywhere from Shanghai through to New York through to Alaska, Everybody could trade loans, and it would all be one big seamless whole. Now, there were lots and lots of problems with this concept, and I'll talk about that in a minute, because actually, if you look at all three of those ideas, they were all riddled with contradictions, um, which the participants, if you like, those involved in developing them, failed to spot for a very long time. But at least in the late 1990s, as this particular team was developing their te techniques to slice and dice that furiously, um, to a certain extent, they were quite risk-averse about the way they actually employ this technology. And one of the key reasons for that was that they were a very small team. They were literally about a dozen people. And I don't know if any of you have ever worked inside a bank, but the way that most banks tend to operate these days is that they're so big, they're run as giant bureaucracies, and you tend to have one department, one of the tribal groups, if you like, that's involved in, say, risk management, involved in actually trying to make sure that the products don't turn dangerous, another department involved in sales, another department involved in IT, and maybe another department involved in actually trading instruments. Partly because this was such a cottage in industry back in the late 1990s, that this particular JP Morgan group was very small and very interconnected. And they had a sense of actually they knew the risk guys, they knew the sales guys, they knew the IT guys. They were all talking together in quite a holistic sense. And so they actually spotted a lot of the potential dangers at quite an early stage. On one hand, they were operating in a planet that was almost semi-detached from normal society, if you like. I mean, they were using concepts of credit risk, borrowing ideas from the world of physics and science to kind of measure money and to have a very abstract concept of finance that was very detached from real life. Um, they used to sometimes joke that their leader, or the person who was actually in charge of them, would have his come to planet Pluto moments, when he'd literally come up with ideas which were so wacky, they were almost entirely detached from real life, if you like. But on the one hand, they were operating on a kind of very abstract plane, but because they were a small group, they did actually have a sense of cause and effect, of consequence. And some of the ideas they played around with in the late 1990s in terms of trying to model the risk that companies would go into default, model the risk of mortgages would go into default, they actually said, well, hang on a sec, stop. We don't really have enough data to plot exactly how households are going to behave for the next 10 years. That's a bit too dangerous. And they had some checks and balances that held them in check, if you like. The problem came after 2000, because from the period from 1995 to 2000, this small group of people were developing their ideas, operating very frenetically as a unit, 
caught up in the excitement of the whole thing. But they did have some checks and balances. But investment banks are fundamentally very insecure places. Again, Karen Ho's book, Liquidated, and captured this very well. J.P. Morgan was very unusual amongst the investment banking climate because actually it had more job security than most, and this particular team stayed together for about 10 years, um, which in Wall Street terms is literally an age. I mean, normally teams are lucky if they stay together for a year or two. But in 2000, this group split up and scattered across the rest of Wall Street. Um, as so often on Wall Street, what happened was one or two key leaders left. And you know, one of the things that, if any of you have looked at finance, is very striking is that you know, the social dynamics tend to be very much focused around one or two, one or two key leaders. Um, it's a bit like a sort of nomadic you know, herding group, where if you have one or two key leaders, everyone follows. And when they go to another bank, they all follow with them kind of thing. Um, all the complicated structures and bureaucracies that banks create, and they like to claim organizers the way that um, employees set themselves up, in fact, are often very fictitious. But the group split up and scattered across the rest of Wall Street. Their ideas scattered too. And during the early years of the last decade, what essentially happened was that the ideas spread across Wall Street and the City of London, the techniques began to spread, they mingled with other branches of finance, and bankers began to increasingly slice and dice and chop up not just corporate loans, which is what the J.P. Morgan Group had done originally, but mortgage loans, and then almost anything that moved, anything they could find that they could apply this technology to, they began to do so in an increasingly frenetic way. And as they did so, they continued to be infused by these original ideas of globalization. It is automatically good to keep slicing and dicing and connecting the world together. Um, free markets being automatically good, all of this is about free market completion and innovation. The kind of original rhetoric, the mantra, the buzz was there and became intensified. But something else very important happened, which was that although these ideas had originally been in the preserve of a small, fairly bounded group, which had a sense of cause and effect, which was small enough to actually have an idea of risks and how IT operated, as they disseminated across Wall Street, they began to get caught into this bureaucratic machine. And that had two important consequences. Firstly, it meant that by the time you get on to 2005 or 2006, essentially you had little mini departments inside big banks having picked up these ideas and applied them to different areas of you know, the real world, if you like, but done so in a very isolated, siloized way. Essentially, you'd have, say, a team at a bank that was using this technology to slice and dice mortgage risk. But they no longer actually had direct connection with, say, the risk department. I mean, they were a completely different tribe, as far as they were concerned, or the IT guys. And often, they wouldn't actually have a very good sense of how the overall activities of the bank were operating, or how other banks were operating. <coughs> they were op you know, acting in a very narrow little field of their own. Ironically, under the guise of promoting globalization, all being part of a seamless whole, what was actually happening inside banks to the people who were promoting this concept was they were becoming more and more siloized, to use a rather ugly word, but more and more marked by small bounded units. And then something else even more extraordinary began to happen, which is that under the guise of promoting free market um, completion, perfect free markets, 
the idea that you can have a world where everything can be traded. As the bankers began to get better and better at slicing and dicing risk, they created more and more complicated products. The products became so complicated that they became almost impossible to trade at all. The terrible bitter irony was that by 2005 and 2006, most of these new shiny financial sausages, most of these reconstituted packages of debt, were so incredibly complicated that you couldn't value them unless you had banks and banks of computers. And you couldn't actually trade them because they were create them with bespoke products. It's like trying to trade high, high, high couture fashion as opposed to mass market t-shirts. You know, there were probably only five people in the world who actually wanted them. And in fact, they were so hard to trade and there was so little market that bankers themselves were having to value them, having to record what they estimated the value to be on their own trading books by using models instead of using market prices because market prices didn't actually exist. Ironically, the banks all claimed to be using mark-to-market accounting, and the dominant ideology in America in particular was that America was moving on this evolutionary curve towards perfect free markets, and that was a good thing, and therefore it was only natural that all the banks should be using mark-to-market accounting and measuring the value of their books according to markets. And yet, at the very same time, all those who were involved in innovation and globalization were creating products which were completely impossible to actually valued according to free markets. It was a terrible fundamental contradiction, very, very peculiar. I mean, for any of you who are accounting geeks in the audience, you know, if you look at something called level three assets inside the books of the banks, this was a perfect, and they actually had to create a special category inside the accounting system called level three assets, which was basically the, le- the assets which were hard to value. No one actually said they're hard to value because there is no market, because that would have ripped the ideology apart, but that was the reality. Now, one of the key questions you have to ask is, why the hell did no one notice this? Here you have this little tribe of ultra-bright people who have been scurrying around, doing all this stuff, being very highly paid, and why did nobody see this? Several reasons. One of them is the fact that they were all just too darn busy and scurrying around frantically within their own little kind of silo. And they had obviously absolutely no incentive to start asking hard questions. I mean, one of the curious traits about um, investment banking world, the little tribe, is that they are marked simultaneously both by extreme arrogance, in the sense that they are super bright people who've come up through universities, been told they're always one of the brightest of the bright. They know they speak a language. There's all this technical, mathematical stuff that no one else can understand certainly not mere journalists. Um, And then they join Wall Street and they get paid a lot of money and they think they are the bee's knees. But at the same time, they're also extremely insecure. Not just because they all know they have the risk of losing their job at any time. I mean, the old J.P. Morgan idea of having a job for life disappeared pretty rapidly in the last um, decade. But also because one of the paradoxes about finance is that unlike manufacturing, or most other areas of activity, there is no such thing as a patent. If you have a brilliant idea, if you invent something in finance, you can't generally protect that from being copycatted by everyone else. So within finance, there is this perpetual arms race, which is the minute you have a brilliant wheeze, you know you have to quickly make as much money as you can from it before all your competitors copy it, and the margins the profitability collapses. 
So to go back to the JP Morgan team and their original great invention, the Bistro product, when they first came up with that back in 1997, they had about a year of clear water when they could make profits from it, and then the other banks copied it, and then the pressure was on to innovate further to create a new rinky-dink idea that would actually make more money. So you have this constant arms race. And as I say, the JP Morgan Group had enough of a sense of common identity and purpose to actually have some checks and balances and not go completely mad. By the time you fast forward to 2005 and 2006, and you have these giant bureaucratic banks, each individual department didn't have that anymore. Every single department was out to get what it could as fast as it could before other people beat them to it. So they had no incentive really to rock the boat. They had a very silo vision, but they also had a real lack of any external constraint or any external oversight. And that really is one of the key points, because if I go back to where I started, which was a conference in Nice in 2005, as I said, when I wandered in there, I had this idea that I was really crashing in very much as an outsider in a way that frankly baffled them. I mean, you know, they said to me, you know, why are you here? You know, why would you be interested in what we're doing? You know, there was no sense of people um, you know, who were used to explaining themselves, used to having to talk about what they were doing. As I said, in much the same way that when I turned up in Tajikistan at these weddings, you know, I'd have to explain, you know, why are you here? What, you know, why do you care about Tajik wedding rituals? But because they were so frenetically engaged in their own little world, there was very little ability to step back and try and put it into context. And in a sense, to step back and do what an anthropologist would do almost instinctively. Um, back in the days when I was doing my PhD, I was very heavily influenced by the works of Pierre Bourdieu. And one of the things that you know, has often driven me is this concept of social silence, this idea that what really matters in terms of how an elite controls a society is not merely what's actually said in public, the kind of the, the docs of the actual you know, discussion, it's all the stuff that people leave unsaid because it's boring or um, you know, it's, 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 it's boring or dull or it's taboo, etc., etc. And in a sense, what you had in this little group, this little tribe, by 2005 and 2006, was a group of bankers for whom all of these ideologies were so self-evident and were producing such good that they had no t time, no luxury, no incentive to step back and actually question it. On one level, as you know, Bourdieu argued, you know, in the semi-conscious element, some of them were aware of the contradictions. You know, from time to time, you know, they would say, oh, yes, it is rather odd that we have all these level three assets or things that can't be marked to market in a supposedly free market system. But there wasn't the external scrutiny. There wasn't the sense of um, challenge, which had actually allowed them to put things into context. If you like, they were driven by concepts of money, which they really believed their own, they swallowed their own rhetoric, and thought that finance really was about Greek letters. It really was a universal they had forgotten that credit is all about belief. It's fundamentally a social construct. Now, as you all know, and I'll stop in a couple of minutes, but um, then it all obviously went horribly wrong. And the story of 2007-2008 is very much a story of all these complicated, over-engineered devices for the slicing and dicing risk having been shown to not merely have dispersed risk, in a way that made the system safer for a period, 
but actually ended up making the system much more dangerous because they created new concentrations of risk that people hadn't spotted. The very illusion of having people think that innovation had allowed them to have more safety in the system meant that they'd taken greater risk, they'd be more reckless with terrible consequences. Um, it's a bit like giving people um, seat belts or ABS um, systems, you know, flashy braking systems in cars, and hoping that because they had these wonderful seat belts and flashy braking systems, then you'd have much safer drivers. In reality, what happens sometimes is that people say, well, hey, we have great braking systems, we'll drive twice as fast, and therefore you have more accidents at the end of the day. I mean, that had roughly been what happened in banking. But over the last year, I mean, partly through writing the book, partly through talking about the book with, other, with the original J.P. Morgan group, I've gone back to a number of them and tried to talk to them about how they make sense and what happened, you know, what went wrong, why did no one spot the dangers, you know, why did they end up becoming so seduced by their own rhetoric? And, you know, like any group of participants, you know, they have a plethora of different reactions. Um, most of them have been on this extraordinary roller coaster ride. Um, many of them feel very emotional, very bruised. Um, some of them remain true believers. And there are still some who say, well, listen, we still think that slicing and dicing risk in this way could and should have been great. Um, it could and should have given us a perfect way to model the danger of defaults. Um, it was just the other banks who abused it. It's all their fault. And if only they hadn't abused it, then we would have been fine. Um, there are others at the other end of the spectrum who say to me now, well, in fact, the whole thing was completely mad um, from beginning to end. And we were wrong to think that actually you could ever create a system whereby you could slice and dice risk and value risk with this incredible precision of using computers. And in a sense, the problem with um, computing, this excessive faith in computing power, lay at the core of it. One of the most thoughtful comments I had, actually, which I'm going to read out, was right, I used right at the end of my book, was from one of the um, women on the original group, a woman called Blythe Masters. I say who's very symptomatic of um, the way that, at least in this moment of time in financial history, there was, because it was driven by brain power, not traditional networking stuff, there really was a pretty egalitarian, meritocratic world for a while, because she actually ended up um, doing very well in this team. But she's a very interesting character, because she... Um, let me find this. Here's how she may try and make sense of it at the end. The economic models that Hancock and Merck Merton, these were the group leaders and others, upheld for modelling credit risk were right in a sense. But the problem was they didn't give not give enough emphasis to all the human issues, the regulatory structures and things like that. I.e., all the years that people like J.P. Morgan and others were developing these computer models to try and analyse risk. They believed in the free market, they believed that it could be modelled like physics, or like law of physics. But somehow they tended to assume that all the kind of human factors were almost extraneous, they were like the noise in the models. But the idea that these models were just noise, the idea that these issues were just noise, like regulatory structures, that is just dead ass wrong. We don't live in that world of perfect economic models. So to me that's a very powerful acknowledgement that, as I said, the great fallacy that drove so much of finance was this idea that money was an acultural element, that it could be stripped out of cultural context and modelled by using physics um, ideas, and modelled by using the laws of physics. The last couple of years have shown just how dangerous that is. 
there are some people inside finance who are beginning to recognize that. Um, certainly that little group of gurus, of, um, of experts, have been badly shaken. In that context, it's actually a very exciting time to be writing about the world of finance um, from the perspective of someone with a social anthropology background because there's now much more interest in engaging with those issues on the part of bankers and those involved in finance. But there's still a long way to go, and I just finished by saying, you know, very happy to take any questions. And if any of you, I don't know, some of you look a bit, a bit too old to be um, still graduating, but if any of you as anthropologists have any interest in working in finance or ever thought about it, don't be put off. Um, finance certainly needs anthropologists. And I dare say some anthropologists might actually enjoy doing it. So, there we go.